0: I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. James Madison was one of our nation's founding fathers. He was the fourth president of the United States, and his Montpelier estate was maintained by about 300 enslaved people over more than 140 years. Since 2018, the Montpelier Foundation was considered a leader in how the history of former plantations could be told with the active involvement and leadership of the descendants of the enslaved. But that all fell apart in March when the foundation stripped the Montpelier Descendants Committee of its ability to propose future members to the board. What happened? And is it possible for all voices to be heard in the telling of the complete history of our nation? The invisible
1: founders of our country have never
0: had a voice. And we owe it to them. In this conversation, first recorded on April 14th for Washington Post Live, James French, chair of the Montpelier Descendants Committee, explains why it's patriotic to accept what he calls the wholeness and completeness of our shared American history. Mr. French, welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. So before we get into the controversy, tell us who who are the members of the Montpelier Descendants Committee and your specific connection? Thank you. Um, Well, the Montpelier
1: uh, Descendants Committee represent the elected organization, the democratically formed organization um, created by an over 300 member community of people who trace their uh, descendants to um, Montpelier and uh, adjoining uh planned former plantations and so um what they are is they're members of a unit that we use we call it a community um, as opposed to uh, using the property boundaries of any specific plantation and that's really important because um, families were not uh, defined by property boundaries families uh overlapped uh from one plantation to the next both white and black so we look at the community uh, 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 that lived within a certain ecosystem, and uh, this is the community of Montpelier. Mm-hmm.
0: And and your specific and your specific connection to Montpelier.
1: Right. So uh, right now I'm sitting in the house that my great 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 grandfather built. Uh, he was an enslaved uh, gentleman, and he was the uh, son of the neighbor of James. Uh, Madison. Uh, his name was James Newman. My my three times great grandfather was J. Albert Newman, and then he changed his name to J. J. Albert Brown. His wife was also an enslaved woman in the in the next plantation over, uh, the Barber plantation. Barber James Barber was 18th governor of Virginia, and he uh, both Newman and Barber had children with slaves. Newman had a uh, an enslaved a, a child with an enslaved woman named Rachel. Barber had a child with an enslaved woman named Priscilla, and that is my my mother's family. And though, as I said before, all of these families—these were the major families, the, the Madison family, the Newman family, and the Barber family—all of these families, white and Black, intermarried. And uh, for example, James Barber, the governor, was the pallbearer at James Madison's funeral. He was the next generation. But if you look in the family cemeteries, uh, my family cemetery, which is right across the street from where I'm sitting, you see all of these names. You see the Barber names, you see the Newman names, you see all of these names in the Black family cemetery. Um, And so this was truly uh, uh, an intermingling of of blood, although the power relationship, as you know, was was very um,
0: unequal because of slavery. Mm -hmm. So now let's get into the into the understanding, the controversy. What, what is the, the Montpelier Descendant Com- Descendants Committee's relationship to the Montpelier Foundation? And how did the concept of, quote, sp- uh, structural parity govern that relationship? And I should point out that you are a member of both the MDC and the Montpelier Foundation.
1: That's correct. I'm the cha- the founding chair of the Montpelier Descendants Committee, and I'm a board member of the foundation, the Montpelier Foundation. Um, well, so it's important to back up to answer your mm-hmm. question. Uh, the staff of Montpelier had been collaborating very, very closely with the descendants community over two decades. So from the, the uh, inception of the foundation, which was in the late 90s up until... You know, uh, 2018, there had been close collaboration with the staff of, of of Montpelier and and members of the Descendants community on certain projects, but it wasn't a formalized relationship. And in 2018, there was a, uh, a summit held at Montpelier called the National Summit on Teaching Slavery, and it was sponsored by the National Trust, which owns Montpelier and um, located at the Montpelier Foundation campus. And that was a gathering of over 57 experts, leading experts from around the country and around the world, on the study of uh, you know, hist- historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, people studying uh, material culture, economic history, all various different aspects of Amer- early American history, including the study of slavery. And they came up with something that is uh, known today as the rubric. And the rubric is a document that um, essentially um, evaluates the relationship between descendant communities and this and the and the um, the organ the institutions that manage these sites, these uh, museums. Mont- Montpelier is essentially a museum, and so it 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 was a groundbreaking document. It was the very first time that that a best a series of best practices were put down on paper by a leading group of national experts and the MDC gathered in, MDC was formed a year after the rubric was written in 2019 on Juneteenth weekend in 2019 and I, along with 300 other uh, known descendants of Montpelier, were invited and we came together and we created this organization to formally uh, represent ourselves vis-a-vis the institution. And we, you know, we we used we adopted the rubric, and we formed ourselves along democratic principles, elected officers, and eventually created a five hundred one c three. So that that's how the relationship formed. And I think your next question was about structural parity. Mm-hmm. Now, structural parity is is the essential concept in the rubric. So structural parity is the idea that the relationships between these institutions, the museums, and the communities whose history they are essentially telling, has in the past, at best, really been based upon kind of a tokenism ar- arrangement, at, at best. And so that means that on you know one-off basis, uh, you might have someone on a, a senior staff position from a descendants community, or someone who's honored uh, on for a specific known history or eventually a single board member, but it wasn't structural. And so the idea of structural parity is that the descendants should have a structural relationship that is at least equal to that of the, uh, the museum itself, meaning that from the board level all the way down to the volunteer level, there should be equal power and decision-making authority between the descendants, who are known as the ethical client in this relationship and the institutional client of the museum itself. That's the idea of structural parity. Mm-hmm. And as, as as obvious it may sound, as it may sound to us now, it was actually a very groundbreaking idea for the museum world.
0: Right, and so correct me if I'm <clears throat> wrong, right now there are five descendants of enslaved people on the 16-person board. Three were named by the Montpelier Descendants Committee and two from the foundation.
1: Is that right? That's that is correct. That is correct.
0: The idea of structural
1: parity, the way that that we negotiated it over a year of very very difficult, intense um, uh, uh, negotiations with this current board, the way that it worked was that the MDC decided that we would keep the main governance structure of the M- of the foundation intact, and and normally a the the way the board members are brought they are interviewed by the governance committee and then recommended up to the full board for a vote, so what we said is okay let's keep that let's not let's not change everything let's have one change to that governance committee so fifty percent of that governance committee will be then uh will include um m d c members and the m d c will then nominate to that governance committee people that it feels represent uh, the descendants interests and it could be anyone it could be it doesn't have to be uh, you know descendants themselves, it could be descendants or it could be anyone in the country, anyone in the world, just like the foundation could do. and that governance committee with fifty percent of MDC members would then make a recommendation to the board and the board would vote and at least half of the eventual uh board members would come from that process. In number, in other words, the MDC would have at, have it named at least half of the uh board members through structural parity. That was the way it was supposed to work. That's the way that we um negotiated it last June. That's not how it worked, So, so um and 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 the fact that, that that process uh
0: was not respected by the board is what led to the the current dispute. so then let's t- so then let's talk about that because this is why um it is now in the news and is it is the the talk of the museum world of the um racial equity world because as you talked about the rubric that came out of that meeting that you were talking about was seen as the model montpelier was seen as you know this is how this should be done and yet last month um the board the foundation board reversed course why
1: Well, I mean, uh, that's an interesting question. So let's just talk about first what was lost by that decision. So the rubric is a respected gold standard throughout the entire museum community. And I mean all museums. It's really the talk, the toast of the museum world. And I would have expected Montpelier to have embraced it, be the first institution to embrace it and to understand what a gift it is to the entire field of museums. That was not the case. It was treated as a document that was a foreign document imposed upon it um, and and was resisted by the board. Um, that was very unfortunate and almost inexplicable. So what happened was that the um, a series of, of, of you know, um, of, Just resistance, uh, movements, actions of resistance to this uh, began, both during the negotiation for structural parity. There were comments by board members that were, you know, frankly, just extremely off-putting as we negotiated this. Um, And there was, as soon as we were able to get the bylaw changes for uh, structural parity passed, um, it, it initially failed on its first vote. The board failed, uh, the, the, the measure failed, and I think the board kind of got a little worried about the message that would send to the, to the outside world, and then they finally um, uh, passed it. But then there was immediately talk of some side contract that they wanted the MDC to sign that would essentially take away equality and an equal partnership. The idea is for the MDC to be an equal co-steward um and they wanted the mdc to sign a side contract that would really reduce us to a second second class status in which we would have to ask their permission to issue public statements even tweets or you know social media whatever they would have to approve of it and just a series of second class uh, measures and it just went downhill from there um in the first um action board action after um voting for uh Structural parity. This board put on someone over the objections of the MDC. Put someone on the board who was opposed to the existence of the MDC, and then the next day issued a press release implying that the MDC had in fact uh, endorsed that person and that uh, that that appointment uh, qualified for structural parity. Yet we we knew because the person had said in writing that they were opposed to even to even our existence. It was a very obvious action of, of extreme bad faith um, there were comments uh, in the board that uh, compared the structural parody to uh, the, the, a phrase was used that referred to the Korean War uh, a racial Pumonjong, which is a, re- a reference to the Korean War essentially my interpretation of, of this comment was a, that a board member was calling this a race war and uh, mm-hmm. that person said that you know uh, a certain person, uh, the, the, the father of this field, Dr. Michael Blakey, uh, this person said that person was threatening because of their, quote, Frederick Douglass stare. Um, there were just incredible comments and, and, and actions that were that let us know immediately that we were not welcome and that they did not want to, in fact, share power.
2: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com podcast.
0: I'm curious because you're also a member of the Montpelier Foundation. I mean, the the, the board chair, um, Eugene Hickok. Were you su- are you surprised by the actions he's taken to basically decimate the participation of the Montpelier Descendants uh, Committee?
1: I'm very disappointed in the chairman. Uh, I I think that. Any chairman of an organization that purports to um, to manage the legacy of our founding fathers, and especially James Madison. Now, James Madison was he enshrined representative democracy, and essentially the you know the, the notion that we elect our own leaders and that we uh, we have a representative democratic system. Um, the the March 25th change, the retraction of structural parity, essentially uh, was a statement by this board that they will choose, they will treat our recommendations as merely that, suggestions, and that they will have the final say in who our representatives are. So it's, it's you know, James Madison is spinning in his grave right now. Um, the, the board of Montpelier um, owes much more to the legacy of James Madison than it's showing. Currently. So, yes, I'm very disappointed in the chairman, but also of the entire board that voted 10 to 3 to retract structural parity as as it was negotiated. I did want to add that after they uh, put someone on board who had vowed that our organization should not even exist, the mediators who had been appointed by the National Trust resigned. They quit because of that act Mm. of bad faith um so um you know what we are not willing to do is to be used as props to get good press to be used as props to obtain funding uh to uh and then and then uh be expected to kind of go along with business as usual after that mm-hmm. we're also very very concerned about uh talk of retaliation against staff um there was a uh, a particular board member who uh i am told by staff made comments about if the mdc came to power that all white staff would be fired which is just a ludicrous just toxic thing to say uh if in fact this were true but the fact of the matter is that the majority of full-time staff put out a bold and courageous statement in support of the mdc you can read it at montpelierstaff.com and the staff are a hundred percent uh uh in support of what we're doing, the full-time staff I'm mm-hmm. speaking of are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly uh in support of of the uh the movement uh of the uh of structural mm-hmm. parity.
0: Mr. French, let's wind the aperture a, a bit here. Why is That's... it important for the descendants of slaves uh at Montpelier, but at other um other plantations, former plantations, be be a part of the process or the storytelling of of those locations?
1: Because it's a unifying message. Because the invisible founders of our country have never had a voice. And we owe it to them. In the case of Madison, You mentioned it at the top of the show, 300 enslaved people um, were uh, enslaved by this family for over 140 years. Everything that Madison was and became and did for our country was because of those 28 people per per family member. Um, I've never been in a community in my life in which the people around me did not affect me and contribute to who I am. I'm a product of my communities. And so was Madison, and so was Jefferson, and so was Washington, all of the Founding Fathers that we revere. It's really important that we understand the contributions of all of the invisible founders so that we can understand the true and complete history of our country. And I think even as difficult as that history is, it's required for us to uh, unite around a common history. And that history is not too difficult for Americans to understand and to accept. Uh, it's at the end of the day, it's patriotic to be able to accept the wholeness of even complicated history, and and I think um, uh, that's why the rubric and structural parity parody, uh, was kind of fetid amongst the museum uh, community, and why it's so important. It truly is groundbreaking, and um, I think that at a at a time in our nation's history where there's so many centrifugal uh, forces pulling us apart. Um, A better understanding of history is really, really important, and it has a mighty message. And
0: telling the the history of our country more fully is actually um, what's driving this question that I got from, uh, audience question from Eric Fromer of California. He asks, what is the ideal balance at Montpelier for depicting lives of enslaved people as well as the intellectual achievements of Madison? So let me um, try to answer that question with an analogy.
1: Um, Imagine you're at a table, a board table, um, and it could be in any organization. And half the chairs are full, half the chairs are empty. And a new group comes down and they sit down at that table alongside the, the group that is already there. The group that was already sitting there did not become half as powerful. They became more powerful. So all of the power and the history and the knowledge that was brought in by the other group benefit everyone. So what I think we need to do as we look at history, just as we look at power, we have to understand that narratives as well as power are not finite resources. They are additive. Uh, I I have to say, I'm a a huge fan of the intellectual achievements of Madison. I think he was a genius. Um, I read about him all the time. However, Talking about how he became who he became, does not detract from his genius. And so there's a, a we need to uh, really guard against this zero sum mentality, some sometimes that are promoted, which say, well, if we talk about slavery, we're detracting from Madison. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, Madison himself recognized that. Madison essentially talked, of, and I'm just going to speak in terms. He talked of kind of two, two uh, evils, if you will. And one of them was disunion, and the other was that of slavery. And he, you know, in his whole, he he was very uh, clear about the tyranny of the the majority in the way that he formulated the government, uh, with with carefully constructed checks and balances. And um, he really addressed his powers to solving the problem of disunity. He compromised on the evil of slavery. And and so that's just part of history, and we need to understand why he compromised on that. What could have been
0: had he not compromised on that? Do you think the American people are incapable today of understanding that our history is nuanced and complex, and two things could be true at the same time?
1: Short answer is no. I think the American people are a lot smarter than then uh are commonly given uh they're commonly given credit for for people who seek to um impose zero-sum uh frames uh i think especially if you look at um at at younger people younger people have a craving for complicated narratives they have a craving for a uh, complete history um, there if you look at the viewership the visitorship of museums they are Uh, decreasing over time, they are aging, and the way to increase um, the embrace, if you will, of these these institutions is to tell the truth, the whole complete warts and all narrative of how things uh, came about in early America. And that begins with telling the story of slavery and how slavery was fundamental uh, to the economic and the social and the cultural systems that, um, that were key to the formation of our country and how um, how we eventually uh, fought against that is is a huge part of the narrative but we have to
0: talk about where it began and and, and finally what would um president madison say about 21st century america about the conversation we're having in this country right now everything being lumped in uh, under the umbrella of quote-unquote critical race theory. Good question, um well, obviously, we can't know, but I would think that uh,
1: President Madison knew that he had unfinished work, and he was very much aware of the compromises that he made uh, in his mind for the sake of unity, but um, I have a feeling that he would be very supportive of the descendants movement because uh he had unfinished business um, in, in his day. And so um, I, what I do know is that the founding fathers were not shrinking violets. They were not afraid of difficult conversations. They were fighters and they realized that
0: this country is strong. James French, chair of the Montpelier Descendants Committee. Thank you so much for coming to Cape Heart on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.